As a subject of study, Alfred Hitchcock made so many films, 57 in all, that no matter what your thesis, there is often enough material elsewhere to contradict your position. For instance, in the mid-1950s, American critics regarded Hitchcock merely as an entertainer. But at the same time, a group of French critics were proposing that the master of suspense was in fact a master of the medium, an auteur whose signature style explored intricate themes of guilt, paranoia, identity, the subconscious, voyeurism and gender. By the late 60s, however, Hitchcock's career was in decline, and soon feminists found that those very same themes masked an unbridled misogyny. Hitchcockian cinema typified the male gaze, maliciously, if not murderously, objectifying women. But in the last few decades, the pendulum has swung yet again, this time arguing that Hitchcock's films are, in fact, examinations of masculinity in crisis. Far from being paragons of rugged manhood, Hitchcock's heroes were case studies of anxiety, uncertainty and instability. With that in mind, let's view Hitchcock's films from the female gaze. Here is the man himself in 1960 being interviewed by Hugh Weldon for the BBC programme Monitor. 80% of the audience in the cinema are women. Um, because, you see, even if the house is 50-50, half men, half women, a good percentage of the men has, of the, uh, has said to his girl, being on the make, of course, what do you want to see, dear? So that's where her influence comes as well. So uh, men have very little to do with the choice of the film. In an earlier interview with Langford Reed and Hetty Spears for the Who's Who in Filmland magazine, Hitchcock had said, I believe that the vast majority of women in all ranks of life are idealists. They may not live up to their own ideals, often they cannot do so, but they do like to see them personified by their favourite film heroines. That interview took place in 1931. So let's reconsider North by Northwest from the point of view of a 1950s female audience. In Hitchcock films, small details count, so let's look beyond the MacGuffin. Roger Thornhill, played by Cary Grant, being mistaken for George Kaplan, a fictitious CIA spy and then getting himself mired in a conspiracy led by James Mason's Philip Van Damme, who is aiming to smuggle government secrets out of the United States. And instead, focus on the woman who links all those elements, Eva Marie Saint's CIA operative, Eve Kendall. I met Philip Van Damme at a party one night and saw only his charm. Oh. I guess I had nothing to do that weekend, so I, I decided to fall in love. Oh, that's nice. Eventually, the professor and his Washington colleagues approached me with a few sort of details about Philip. And they told me that my relationship with him made me uniquely valuable to them. Mm -hmm. So you became a Girl Scout? Maybe it was the first time anyone ever asked me to do anything worthwhile. Has life been like that? Mm -hmm. How come? Men like you. Now, what prompted Eve Kendall to say that, and precisely that? Eve is 26, which means she was born in 1933, the worst year of the Great Depression. She grew up during World War II, before graduating from college, while the Eisenhower administration was fighting the Cold War. Given America's acutely conservative mood, 
just how many options were there for a woman like her? To answer that, let's re-examine Roger Thornhill. Before Ernest Lehman's intoxicating plot abducted Thornhill from the lobby of Manhattan's Plaza Hotel and sent him careening north by northwest to Mount Rushmore, he was an advertising executive on Madison Avenue. The same line of business as Sterling Cooper and Cutler Gleason and Shaw. small elite clique of heavy drinking, chain smoking, bigoted, homophobic and serially unfaithful married male executives who, through skewed market research and persuasive advertising, determined what the rest of the country ate, wore, drove, smoked and drank, as well as heavily influenced the way women were represented. Yet, for all the cruelty inflicted on women in Hitchcock's films, he also had many of them display great courage, daring, fortitude and resourcefulness which means Eve Kendall is not alone. Next to her in the Hitchcock Gallery will be Notorious's Alicia Huberman. I promise not to break the rules again, but I need some advice and I couldn't find Mr Devlin. In fact, I need it before lunch. Well, something happened? Yes, something rather confusing. Mr Sebastian has asked me to marry him. What? Well, well. He, um, he wants me to marry him right away and I am to give him my answer at lunch. I didn't know what the department might think about such a step. Are you willing to go this far for us, Miss Lieberman? Yes, if you wish. Now consider this. The plot for Rear Window may be driven by L.B. Jeffries, Stage Fright by Jonathan Cooper, Spellbound by John Ballantyne, Shadow of Doubt by Charlie Oakley, Saboteur by Barry Kane, Foreign Correspondent by John Jones, Young and Innocent by Robert Tidzel, and The 39 Steps by Richard Hannay. But it is through the courage, daring, fortitude and resourcefulness of the women in those films, Lisa Fremont, Eve Gill, Dr. Constance Peterson, Charlie Newton, Patricia Martin, Carol Fisher and Erica Burgoyne, that justice is ultimately served, order is restored and the all-important male crisis is eased. The heroine in The 39 Steps is Pamela, and although she has very good reason to doubt Hannah's innocence, after all, he does assault her in a train compartment, but once she finds proof that he is being framed, she agrees to help him. Those two men were in here last night. I overheard them telephoning. What did they say? Oh, uh, a lot of stuff about about the 39 steps. The 30, you, you what? Know, no, go on, go on. Uh, and someone's going to warn them. How can you warn steps? Never mind, go on. Oh, yes, yes, and there was another thing. Someone's got scared and is clearing out, and... Um, Oh, yes, yes, I know. And, and it's picking up someone at the London Palladium. London Palladium. Although adapted from John Buchan's 1915 novel, The 39 Steps can now be seen as a forerunner for North by Northwest. And just as North by Northwest gives us a glimpse of how Eve Kendall has found a new sense of herself, there is a corresponding moment in The 39 Steps. On his way through Scotland, Hannay briefly meets a farmer's wife. Played by Peggy Ashcroft, Margaret Crofter was originally from the city of Glasgow, but is now married to a Highlander who offers her precious little respect, love or excitement. You been in these parts long? No, I'm from Glasgow. Did you ever see it? No. Oh, you should see Sochi Hall Street with all its fine shops. And Argyle Street on a Saturday night with the trams and the lights and the cinema palaces and the crowds. It's Saturday night tonight. You certainly don't get those things out here. 
No. You miss them? Sometimes. Prior to the ignition of the plots in those films, the female characters lived lives of such suffocation. It is perfectly understandable that any of them would jump at the opportunity to do something, anything that might take them away from the restrictive routines to which they were assigned. Forget the notion of Hitchcock's icy blondes. That was just yet another instance of chauvinist branding. Think of Battle Axe, Femme Fatale, as well as The Girl Next Door. No, in a small way, some of the women in some of Hitchcock's films offered contemporary female audiences a glimpse of, call it what you will, expression, excitement, escape, another life. Don't you think it's time we were introduced? I'm Eve Kendall. I'm 26 and unmarried. Now you know everything. Tell me, what do you do besides lure men to their doom on the 20th Century Limited? I'm an industrial designer. In which case, it should never be forgotten the importance Hitchcock's wife, Alma Revel, played in his career. They were both 27 when they married, and although she began working as an editor, over the course of their 54-year marriage, Revel wrote, or co-wrote, 18 of his films, working as an advisor on many, many more. Although Revel never gave a public interview to confirm this, she was Hitchcock's most trusted consultant, even overruling his original intention for Psycho's shower scene to be delivered completely without music. Likewise, Hitchcock never gave a public interview to confirm Revel's role, but he did speak of his mother's influence. Here he is on The Dick Cavett Show on June the 8th, 1972. I think my mother scared me when I was three months old. <laughs> You, you, you see, that? she said, boo. <laughs> it gave me the hiccups. Yes. And uh, she apparently was very satisfied. All mothers do it, you know. That's how fear starts in everyone. According to Hitchcock himself, Emma Jane Hitchcock required that at the end of each day, her son stand before her bed and tell of all the things he had done. Unlike the cliché of a mother believing her son only capable of being the best, for the young Alfred, each day concluded with a curious confessional. Such a strange dynamic would be repeated in Notorious by Alex Sebastian, in Psycho by Norman Bates, and in The Birds by Mitch Brenner. As for North by Northwest, Clara Thornhill, played by Jesse Royce Landis, is so sceptical of her son, she hardly believes him capable, much less innocent, of anything. If she were a schoolteacher, she would likely give him a zero on his report card, which might account for his middle initial. That's my trademark, rot. Roger O. Thornhill. What does the O stand for? Nothing. Which is where Eve Kendall came aboard. If Roger Thornhill's middle initial does signify anything, what does Eve's name signify? Could she be the first woman to know the truth about Roger? that even though he is not a murderer, let alone a spy, he is an inveterate liar. Jack Phillips, Western sales manager for Kingby Electronics. No, you're not. You're Roger Thornhill of Madison Avenue, and you're wanted for murder on every front page in America. And don't be so modest. Perhaps North by Northwest is not really an adventure mystery romance set against the Cold War, but rather a reconstruction of the mid-20th century white American male. Roger Thornhill, advertising executive, is such a cynic, a new version has to be created. And in order for that to happen, he has to undergo a complete makeover. 
So a non-person is invented, whom Roger then begins to, if this is the right word, impersonate, which might mean that Kaplan is the real Zero in Thornhill's name. Once the makeover is underway, Eve then arrives to help. Soon after meeting him on the train, she hides him in her cabin, stuffing him into the overhead bunk, read a womb-like space, from which he emerges as if reborn. But even then, he is not yet complete. The ensuing attempts to murder him are really further purifications. Eventually, Eve has to kill him, or at least pretend to, in order for the full man to finally realise who he is supposed to be. Which is when he asks her, Has life been like that? Mm-hmm. How come? Men like you. What's wrong with men like me? They don't believe in marriage. I've been married twice. See what I mean? But then again, Eve is undergoing a transformation of her own. Before she fell for Philip Van Damme, she had little sense of self-worth. Then the CIA told her of Van Damme's treason, and suddenly she had a sense of purpose. She became their agent, and in the line of duty, she met and fell for another man, this one an innocent bystander of her very first assignment. Only she can't tell him, because her confession would blow her own cover. Almost everyone in North by Northwest pretends to be someone else. And at the time, that charade was one of Hitchcock's biggest preoccupations. His previous picture had Judy Barton, pretending to be Madeleine Elster, pretending to be possessed by the spirit of Carlotta Valdez. His next picture, Psycho, had Norman Bates dressing up as his dead mother. Earlier in 1956, Hitchcock made The Wrong Man, based on the true story of Christopher Emanuel Ballestrero, who didn't pretend to be anyone other than himself, yet still got caught up in a nightmare. Ballestrero is mistakenly arrested, arraigned and imprisoned by the police for armed robbery. Nothing, not even his mother's steadfast support, can rescue him. And the strain on his wife Rose is so great that she suffers a nervous breakdown. Now there's a well-known pattern to what she's going through. She's buried under some kind of landslide of fear and guilt. What can we do then? The best thing would be to place her in a controlled environment where she can receive medical care. You mean an institution? It must be chosen carefully and must give her a tranquil surrounding and the kind of assistance she needs to find her way out of this maze of terror she's in. She couldn't be at home with us? Not if you think of her and of giving her a chance to get well. I just can't believe that Rose... I can't let her go. While Hitchcock was in production on The Wrong Man, he read in the Los Angeles Times a troubling story of a man who vanished without trace from midtown Manhattan. Jesus de Galindez was a political refugee who had fled his native Spain when General Franco seized control of the country after the Civil War. Having then become a naturalised American citizen, de Galindez began researching a PhD in Columbia University. His subject was the General Trujillo dictatorship in the Dominican Republic. But on March 12, 1956, de Galindez entered the Manhattan subway station on 57th Street and 8th Avenue and was never seen alive again. That same evening, American commercial pilot Gerard Lester Murphy was hired by the CDA, that's the Dominican Republic Airways, to fly a small aircraft from Long Island, New York to the Dominican Republic. 
Murphy said that on board the aircraft was one unidentified passenger with heavy bandages about his head. Four months later, Murphy then vanished while in Santo Domingo. General Trujillo's military police then arrested and charged Octavio de la Maza with Murphy's murder. Curiously, de la Maza had been Murphy's co-pilot on the flight from Long Island. One month after that, de la Maza allegedly hanged himself while in police custody, conveniently leaving a note confessing that he had murdered Murphy. Mysteriously though, the note offered no explanation as to why he had done so. As I said, in Hitchcock's films, small details count. So what has the Delinge story got to do with North by Northwest? Nothing.